Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the End of Sport podcast. Today we're really excited to kick off baseball week with an interview with Andrew Stoughton. Andrew is a Blue Jays columnist for The Athletic and co-host of the Birds All Day podcast. We'll link some of Andrew's work and the podcast in the show notes. As always, if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to reach out to us at Twitter and Instagram at endofsportpod or email us at theendofsportpod at gmail.com. Andrew Stoughton is a Blue Jays columnist at The Athletic and co-host of the Birds All Day podcast. Listeners, especially Canadian listeners, may also be familiar with him for his terrific work in bygone days at Drunk Jays Fans, DJF, and Blue Jays Nation. As an admitted fan of the Jays, and I will talk more about this today, uh, I can honestly say that he is literally the individual I have turned to for well over a decade to elucidate the team for me. And I'm not alone. When I've mentioned some of the guests we were intending to invite on the show to friends uh, in various walks of life, I don't think anyone has elicited more enthusiasm. So, Andrew, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for those kind words. I mean, don't let me get my head too big, but, uh, but I'm, I'm really happy to be talking <laughs> to you guys. Awesome. Well, before we get to the fun stuff, and I think we have a lot to talk about today, uh, I always like to ask how you're coping with the pandemic. And for you, I think it's in beautiful Peterborough, Ontario. And when I say beautiful, I'm not being sarcastic. I, I was sarcastic with Derek earlier about London, Ontario. Uh, but no, Peterborough is beautiful. Uh, and I spent a semester there uh, working as an adjunct instructor in the sociology department at Trent. Um, so I have fond feelings towards the university. So how are you doing, Andrew? I, I'm doing well. And yeah, Peterborough is still beautiful. Ne- not necessarily my neighborhood at all times. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's no, Peterborough is great. I, I grew up here. Uh, so when I've kind of got renovicted in Toronto, as people do, oh, God. Uh, and had a and had a, a a pause in my life as to whether I wanted to live with roommates or in a basement or just never go out again. You know, you kind of don't have a lot of options in that situation. I uh, I took a you know I took a time out, hung out at my parents' place for a little bit in Peterborough, uh, and then kind of really remembered a lot of reasons that I, I liked the city that I had forgotten because, you know, when I left when I was like 18, uh, I was, I never thought I would come back here. Uh, and, and yeah, it's, 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 it is lovely. It's a lovely little, uh, uh, a town that is sort of not connected to the GTA. It's kind of its own little Island of a city, which I, I, I like. We've got some rivers and, and nature and whatnot. Uh, I wouldn't say that my neighborhood is particularly beautiful. Uh, you know, I can, I can smell GE from here, but, uh, uh, (laughs) but, but, uh, but yeah, it's nice. Things are well. And I, I, you know, I feel we're doing okay. I sit by my window a lot. I see a lot of people, uh, walking down the street, uh, in normal times. And lately it's been less. I think people are, you know, taking everything seriously, uh, even in a place like this where it has not necessarily yet been as hard hit by, uh, you know, by the, the, the things of the, of the world that are going on. Yeah, I always appreciate that when I talk to Canadian folks, because down here in Durham, North Carolina, uh, I'm not quite as confident in saying that people are taking it like terribly seriously enough, uh, necessarily. Uh, although, fortunately, we're in a state where we have a governor who's kept us on lockdown, unlike many of the others. But uh, yeah, nonetheless, uh, not seeing as many masks as you might like and, and that sort of thing. However. Yeah, a little bit here. I, well, hell, we have Rob Ford's idiot brother running Ontario, and he's like somehow 
just clears the lowest bar almost every day uh, and is actually getting people to like him, which is a terrifying thought. Oh, <laughs> no, that, that is, that's terrifying. I, you know, and I, I have to say, I'm aware of that because like, you know, when I moved down here in 2016, um, obviously it was like the end of the world because, uh, you know, we, we came in the summer and then Trump came, obviously, um, a few months later. Uh, and that felt pretty apocalyptic, but, and then, so, you know, Canadian friends were sort of like, oh, what have you gotten yourself into? Um, but then lo and behold, look, you, you guys went ahead and chose your own Trump. So uh, I don't really feel like Canadians or at least Ontarians can really look at the U.S. in the same way they did a few years ago. Yeah, I, you know, maybe we will get into this, but yeah, I don't, I don't feel great about about our, our, our Canadian like instinct to assume that we can look down upon our neighbors in the South, even though. I do still feel better about being here than on that side of the border. I'm how long have you been podcasting now? I think it was like 2007, the score. Like that's how I kind of got started with them because we had the blog. Right, yeah. 2007. That's a lot of podcasts. Because you guys also pump them out pretty much every week, I think, right? Pretty much, yeah. Pretty much like like every week since 2007, I've probably done that's, that's actually, that's give insane. Or, give or take. It is actually, <laughs> thank God they're sort of like ephemeral and don't, like, there's no reason for anyone to ever listen to them again. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, it's true. Yours are a different kind of animal than our, like what we're hoping for, because we're hoping to have a little bit of that evergreen quality. You know what I mean? Like, mm. we're not just being topical. If you want to have a, like, listen to Andrew, like, this is what we're hoping for. If you want to hear some Andrew Stoughton talk in a way you haven't really heard him talk before, check out this one episode we did. Who cares if it was like two years ago? It'll still be interesting because it's not yeah, talking no. about like how the Jays are doing this week. For me, the fact that we've never really kind of done it that way just means that, like, thankfully nobody's going back and listening to whatever dumb shit i was saying <laughs> 10 years ago yeah totally <laughs> no, and, a, and a good friend of mine who um who uh, exhorted me to do this um who also by the way is a big fan of yours his name is cena romani um and he has a podcast called the east is a podcast now anyway but um okay. he uh yeah he was like you got you got a podcast because like no one knows the, the shit you say like you're saying really really critical things of your employer as you pointed out and like it'll be harder for, for them to trace you because like they don't have a transcript you know what i mean like it's it's not so easy for them to catch up on what you've done no absolutely all right well let's get into it the baseball stuff um because as i've already mentioned I, I'm, I'm pretty enthusiastic to talk about baseball um but before we get into the nitty-gritty for listeners who might be unfamiliar with your work can you take us through your career a little bit how did you get into writing and talking about baseball what is your angle, Ben? Uh, and where has your professional life taken you? Yeah, that's, I mean, how much time do you have? I guess is a question. Like it's, <laughs> it's, been a weird, it's been a weird ride because it's been something that I, you know, I, I, I assume there are people out there who sort of like plan their careers or think about one step to the next and are, you know, playing three chess moves ahead. I assure you that is not me. Um, yeah, I, 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 went to, I went to York University in Toronto. I'd lived in Peterborough, as we mentioned. I, uh, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I went to university. Uh, for your American listeners, I don't know. I don't know if they know this, but don't know that, or if they know this. But in Canada, we like we don't care about it. Doesn't like it's it's not like a status thing. It's not like a uh, you know our alma mater doesn't really matter unless you're you know you went to Upper Canada College or some like super sort of very narrow elite kind of institution. It was just like yeah, you go to university. Everybody does it, and you, you know. The people who went, I don't know if you went to Queens or U of T. You, you probably did. And I'm probably I went to, I went right to U of T, but I went to grad school at York. So I was at York for, oh, okay. I was at York for almost 10, I don't I think I was at York for almost 10 years for various things. Yeah. Okay. So you know what York's, anyway, so I, I ended up falling into the creative writing program there, uh, which uh, does not prepare you to have a job. 
uh, in any way, but was but but was very beneficial to my life in, in many ways. Otherwise, which is you know I'm not saying you know go and go, you know go and only pursue something that would automatically get you a job. Uh, but so I don't know. I was just a, I became a baseball fan. I was really like when I left high school. I was a movie buff. I had friends who you know all move everybody uh, smart. This is going to sound rude, but everybody smart who was in high school in Peterborough uh, when high school ended were like. I'm getting the fuck out of here uh, mm. and, and generally to Toronto uh, and eventually realized that my, uh, my fondness for film uh, was really just a mask for my fondness for, for booze probably. And, uh, and also that it was, <laughs> that it was cheaper to drink at the baseball game and you could sneak <laughs> drinks in and it was the same price as like a movie, but it was a, it was just a better form of entertainment for me. Uh, and I'd always been a sports fan and I'd always been a baseball fan, but the, you know, I'm, I'm an old person, I think at this time in my life. Uh, so this was like, you know, 2000 or 99 or, or 2001 or whatever, and just started, you know, eating up baseball, just going to games constantly. They had the, uh, the, the Toronto star pass or the fan pass or whatever they called it, where it was like a yep. dollar, a ticket, which mm-hmm. so many people, you know, the, the Jays would never, I think it was like, Mark, it probably took Mark Shapiro about 15 minutes to cancel that program the second he got in the door because it's just not the way they think about how to translate fandom into revenue. But that was such a, a, a touchstone for so many people that I still am connected with. I had that pass for years. It yeah. was incredible, right? I mean, it was, yeah. it, it was the best deal in sports and it made, it made so many people fans, like people who are all like, it's it, exactly it. It, took, it took your fandom to another level because I don't know, I'd have nothing to do at a seven at seven o'clock on a Wednesday night. I'm new to the city. I, you know, I have some friends, but not, you know, I'm not like going out every night. I don't know. I could sit and watch whatever flip around in those days, flip around channels on my TV next to my landline, (laughs) or I could go (laughs) to a baseball game. Um, So anyway, I'm, 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 I'm making this too long a story, but basically some friends and I ended up hating, uh, the writers that would cover the team basically uh which is it's funny now why, they, yeah yeah no i mean these and these were in the fire joe morgan days this was like sort of the nascent days of blogging uh deadspin fire joe morgan was a huge one um where it was just like you could see those communities developing and become part of those communities where it was like like oh right there are other like sport sports fandom is is broad and enormous and uh there's people here who recognize how ridiculous some of the like the the people who are behind the gate sound and uh just started doing it for ourselves basically except uh, assuming that nobody would ever read it uh mostly because we were doing it on we were writing about the blue jays not like more formally but we would like have conversations in like our hockey pool message board or in a like a little email circle among friends of mine uh me and my buddy dustin and friends would just be like hey don't like don't Carla, don't CC everybody on that. Just like <laughs> message between yourselves, and we're like, well, that's fu- that's stupid. I'm not just gonna message back and forth about this. So we just threw it on a blog, expecting nothing to come of it. But like, kind of like here, I I put a thing up here, and it was kind of like gonna be a dialogue between us. Us, and then like six months later, like we're like, holy shit! Like I looked at our traffic. Like people are reading this, and it just sort of snowballed from there uh podcasting i've done for many years i think they the, i was first hired at the score 
to do a Blue Jays podcast. They didn't have any original content. I think this was like 2007. Uh, and they like it was it was bizarre to go into that environment because it turns out I know now a lot about like the TV industry or what the TV industry looked like, you know, before the death throes of the last like 10 years. Uh, but they, they just, they didn't have any web content. They didn't have anything original and they were just like scooping up people who had a voice and had an audience. And I've just kind of been riding that wave ever since. Like they shit canned me eventually. And then I've, I've, <laughs> I've, you know, found other places because it turns out having an audience is really important. And I'm, super grateful to the people that that are the audience but yeah it's uh uh i don't know that's where it started in this and it's it's ended up here at the athletic which has been like just indescribably uh wonderful to be a part of some of a, of, a, of an operation that feels stable uh because their mm -hmm. business model which i didn't believe in at first when i wasn't a, a part of it i remember that i was when i was at blue jays nation i'm like rambling now but i was at blue jays nation and john lott who was at the national post forever it was incredible yeah great uh, writer my, yeah. and my colleague now mm -hmm. at the athletic like he he was writing stuff like when he got when the national post and the sun merged the, the post sports desk basically got turfed and so he was you know a free agent and i was like hey write some stuff for us like holy shit like this would be incredible to have like john lott have write for us like he's you know just such a uh he's just so great at what he does and an inspiration uh uh and he did that for a bit and then eventually was like hey andrew uh this thing called the athletic is gonna pay me way more than you guys to do like uh, and i was like oh man yeah of course go do that and had to think about it at the time it was like Going behind the paywall, man. I don't know. That doesn't. <laughs> I don't know if that's for me. That seems like that's a bit of a weird move. But I hope it works out for everybody. And now I'm just so thankful that I that I did that. Uh, you know, because you know, it turns out you don't know. I guess what uh, where this weird media industry is going at any moment. You mentioned earlier that you like hated the writing that was happening related to um, like back in the day, if you will. Um, and I, I'm curious, like one, why? And two, how did you orient your own um, reporting to not like just do that same thing? Like what's your approach to writing? What, what do you do differently for The Athletic? Well, I mean, at that time, it was definitely like just stats based and just being like yeah. dogmatic about like, look at these guys talking about RBIs and uh, AJ Burnett's a 500 pitcher and mm. just sort of being very willing to uh, re -un like understand the game in a different way uh, through the lens of the stats stuff, which, you know, which anybody can do. Uh, uh, so I, I'm, I'm just very fortunate that anybody's like sort of listened to what I particularly have to say about it. Uh, but that was, that was the differentiator at first. Like, uh, like I was saying, like fire Joe Morgan, just being merciless. It turns, it, it, it sucks to watch those guys all turn, like churn out terrible sitcoms that, you know, are not as, <laughs> are not as good as people thought they were five years ago. Uh, yeah. Yeah. but that blog was like, was, was essential and, and just really spoke to, to just how insular the, the whole group of people who are allowed to speak about not just baseball, but any sport, but any topic really, uh, especially that has, you know, a, uh, 
that has a vested interest for the corporate media to not mm-hmm. sound like that guy, but, but, <laughs> but, you know, that, that really was the spark of that. And, and, and I don't know, we just uh, kind of continued in that spirit. We were very much though a punk rock kind of outfit and just like outrageous and, and, and in sort of the dead spin ethos of like, no access is not, is not important. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the people who are uh, trying to preserve their access or, or just, you know, and we, we talk about it now in terms of like political journalism, like access journalism, that's like a, 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 a mainstream conversation. But in sports, it was that was sort of happening a long time ago and also coming just out of Moneyball and even mm-hmm. just even the Blue Jays hiring JP Ricciardi, hiring guys out of Oakland. We were naive and we're like, yeah, they're hiring the smart guy, not the guy who is going to tear the payroll down to nothing so that the, the company can make a lot of money or the company can buy the stadium for pennies on the dollar, uh, which is what eventually happened. But, uh, but yeah, that's, I don't know. That was sort of the milieu we came out of. If I, if I may use a word, I'm not entirely sure the meaning of. <laughs> that's a great word though. It's a, it's a, it's a... So that actually like brings me to, to a sort of question. I'm, I'm really interested in getting your take um, as a sports journalist. So the whole MO of this podcast is to kind of offer this critical, call it like political take on sport um, and to sort of illuminate a variety of injustices, inequalities, and forms of exploitation that operate within sport. Um, so my question for you is, in that sort of ethos of political journalism is, is what, how dare you <laughs> <laughs> what, what role do you do like journalists and sports journalists reporters and writers have in telling these stories of like exploitation and injustice it's a it's it's a great question that's a that's a real easy way to try to answer a question while not answering anything. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I think that it, it's, it's just, it, it's a, it's a complicated thing and it's a, a, a dynamic that's sort of always there uh, for a long time. I guess I'll say this for a long time. I don't know. You kind of, you go through your life and you think, you know, what you, you, you want to, you want to do something, you want to do something meaningful uh, and then you get stuck in shitty jobs and, and you realize that you're kind of like, that, like not cap- not everybody's capable of just like doing something that, that means anything. Uh, for me, the, a lot of this came out of, for a long time, I worked at a company that did mystery shopping, secret shopping, where it was basically, oh, like, oh it was soul crushing. And I was, I, yeah. I, I, ran, I ran the editing department. <laughs> so all of the, all of the, the, uh, the reports that these people these random people that they would find to like snitch on minimum wage employees at various like retail and restaurants and shit, they would all come through me basically. And I would, you know, push them out for my, my employees, my editors to work on. Uh, and, and, you know, there was a lot of massaging of, of everything. Uh, and, and a lot of, uh, I don't know. I, I just, I saw a lot of this shit and a, a side of not just like, that that part of the industry or of of industry or of like the retail and restaurant industry but just like just like the souls of people were just mm-hmm. they just got off on being like this person didn't have a name tag on or shit like that yeah and it, it just you know it, it 
I don't, I don't know. You, 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 that leaves an impression, I think, on you. And when I left that to do the blaze, the baseball thing, the, the journalism is much too strong a word. I, I couldn't say what I do is <laughs> journalism. That would be wrong to, you know, journalists. Uh, but, but you, you try to tell yourself like, or, or justify to yourself, like what you're doing is not like that, like that shitty thing you did before, I guess is what, how I approached it. Yeah. And a lot of the time it's like, you know, you can talk, I talk about labor issues. I talk about issues that, uh, you know, the way, the, the way that players conduct themselves, there, there are all sorts of like sort of social issues and, and I think important things that sort of are ancillary to the you know, the actual baseball that people mostly care about. Uh, and many of them will tell you when you get off track to stay in your lane. Uh, oh yeah. But, I, <laughs> but that's the kind of stuff that, you know, makes me think that I, I'm not just wasting my, my time here, like pumping a paycheck. I feel like that, that, that allows me to sort of just go whole hog into the work that I do feeling that there's, you know, there's going to be, something that comes out of it for somebody, even though it's really all obviously meaningless. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, okay. Yeah. So I, I hear you loud and clear on the meaningless piece. And yet, and yet <laughs> this is the thing though. There's, there's actually so much, it's like, it's, we can call it meaningless from a political standpoint, but like, it's just, you're marinating in meaning at the same time, right? Because fandom is all about meaning. Um, it's just a different kind of meaning than we might you know, typically ascribe value to. Um, and so <laughs> yeah. I, I want to actually get into that fandom piece. And, I'm, and I, for, in a minute, I'm going to ask you like a, actually a really simple and straightforward question, but I'm going <laughs> to take the long way to get there, um, sure. to touch on a couple of things that you've said, because um, one of them is, I think maybe for some listeners who are not familiar with your work, what you kind of describing might remind them like a little bit of like Bill Simmons, for instance, right? In terms of this approach <sighs> of like the fan, no, don't don't worry. No, that's um, that's that. No, I'm sighing because that's fair, and I never <laughs> thought of that. But that that's similar, similar sort of path, I guess. Or, or this please, is, please. Yeah, it's the fans because it's like coming from the fans' perspective, right? And he too had this sort of blog background. But like, let's be let's be really clear, folks. Like, can't stand Bill Simmons. Bill Simmons <laughs> is garbage. His outlook on the world is garbage. His self importance is garbage. That's not what the work that Andrew's doing. That's it's really a, like you're coming from the fan place. And so that's what I'm going to come back around to. But you're not necessarily channeling it in the same way he is, which is to like really fetishize the fans experience and to sort of say like, the fan is kind of always right to Bill Simmons, right? And like, the, the athletes and everyone else in the sports industry are working for Bill Simmons, in some sense, right, to give him what he wants to get out of it. Um, and now he has the platform to kind of like, I think, indoctrinate others. So he's like really influenced the whole our generation, uh, if I can use those terms, because I think like we're folks who in our 20s and 30s, etc. Like, Bill Simmons was a yeah. this dominant voice in sports media and reshaping sports media. And I think there's a lot of poison to that, quite frankly. Um, and I'm not saying you're doing the same thing. So again, I want to make sure that clear. The other thing I, I want to I could check I could check my bank account and assure you I'm not doing the same thing. <laughs> Touche. You know, that's a great sign, actually. That's a great indicator. <laughs> um, so yeah, I hear you loud and clear on that. Um, so the other thing is to be to be transparent about my own fandom and how it connects to this, because I'm I'm actually really talking about the same like my experience as a fan um, are the same universe that you're operating in. Uh, and like the truth is that my fandom from I would say 2006 to 2015 of the Toronto Blue Jays 
really hasn't even informed my scholarship, right? I've talked before in the show about the kind of auto-ethnographic approach I have taken to like understanding and theorizing fandom and what's going on there. Um, and my experiences as a Blue Jay fan, getting that Toronto Star season pass, which is to say like we were in the cheap seats, the, the so-called 500 level in the so-called Rogers Center, which was always the, was the Skydome to us, but then it became it's, the yeah, Rogers Skydome. Center. Bill Skydome. Yes, thank you, Skydome. Um, so they were the cheap seats and they were not coveted seats, but then as Andrew was describing, um, Suddenly, for a very, like an actually reasonable price, people could get um, what was essentially a season ticket. You just had to show up a little bit early on game day and make sure like you kind of um, claimed your ticket, right? And if not that many people were showing up that day, you got the pretty good ones right behind the plate, but high. Uh, and on the days when, you know, the team was like doing really well, the Yankees were in town, et cetera, you might have a not so good seat, but you still got in. Um, and like you, I was smuggling booze in, so it wasn't that expensive. <laughs> um, and that meant I was going all the time to these games. Uh, and it was the closest I ever came because I actually feel typically like the experience of the North American sports fan is, let's say, not like the UK football fan or soccer fan, as it were, right? Because those fans have typically been um, sort of assimilated into a culture where like going to the stadiums, that is what it means to be a fan of those teams, right? Um, mm -hmm. But that's not what typical North American sports fandom is today. It's mostly like mediated by television screens or whatever other form of tablet or whatever else, right? Like we're watching through a screen mostly. Their fandom is real. People are obsessed. People get meaning. But it's not always in the stadium. That doesn't define the experience of the fan. But I would say for us in Toronto in those days, a lot of us, like you, Andrew, like we were going to games. A lot of us were going to games and there was a culture that had to do with being there in the stadium as well. That was part of the experience. Um, so all of this is to say, I'm curious at this point, um, because like for me, my, my experience of fandom ultimately became mediated by my academic work. And like, I feel a fandom today, but it's certainly in tension with my kind of critique also of what's going on there. Given that your career has kind of operated through like telling, talking to fans to a certain extent, telling fan stories, I'm curious what your relationship is to your own fandom today first. Like, are you still a fan of the Blue Jays? You were a drunk Jays fan. Are you still? <laughs> I, you know what? I, well, they'll never let me in the BBWAA if I say that I am still. <laughs> Fair, yeah. And that's sort of like the central tension of that whole thing that I do. But yeah, of course, yeah, I'm a fan. Uh, and and the weird thing is, and this is this is some like manufacturing consent shit. But like nobody <laughs> would ever ask me to not be like my my job is not like. Nobody was. Nobody would say, "Hey, you said we about the Blue Jays," which I don't right. don't do. I'm trying to be, you know, but like, but that's that's all. That's all the thing that's in my head that I that that I'm aware of. Um, but yeah, I am still a fan. In as much as one can be a fan of anything, you know, the the, the older and more cynical you get about this stupid world we live in. But yes, like if the Blue Jays. But but your it, your your question is amazing because like I I wonder and it's, I'm I'm wondering right now but I've wondered also before if the Blue Jays won the World Series would I feel the same way that I did when the Raptors won ah yes the NBA championship and I don't know that I would and I you know I've been a Raptors fan since you know, since day one there but not in the same way I've got into the you know God I've gone into the weeds on the Blue Jays I've got I've just pulling at grains of sand with the blue jays <laughs> right uh but the emotional ride that the raptors fandom has been where part of it is and this is something i recognized you know uh not necessarily at first uh the idea of 
and I think a lot of Blue Jays fans know this is that uh, like bandwagon fans, uh, mm-hmm. could get, it's it's easy to get it's easy to look down on people who are just oh well, they'll jump in for the good times and whatever. But it's like although well, not only are they sort of necessary economically for your team's success, but it's just like yeah no that's like that's okay like like come on come on for the ride. Uh, it, it took me you know it's it's very easy, and we see this. I don't know. I, I immediately in my mind, I'm thinking of like fans of movie franchises and shit. It's like you see how it's like no, or gamers. You have to. It has to be. You know, the, the my fandom is is a thing that I def, sort of defined and think about. And when other people come in and do it differently than I expect or want, it can become problem a problem for people. Uh, I and I think that I felt. I had I was in that sort of place maybe for a time, uh, you know, and it kind of become it becomes like a rallying cry, like with the people who were getting those season pass tickets. You know, it's like you're the you're the small group of people who are there and who care, even though you're probably just there to get in a fight on Toonie Tuesdays or whatever. I don't know. It's, I, I've changed a lot, I think, in how I think about uh other people's fandom as opposed to my own my own i've never i i try not to think about it i guess because you know oh god i hope i'm i hope i'm not a fan of something that's just hopelessly uncool so. uh, right okay well let's let's talk more about other people's <laughs> fandom actually for a minute okay sure. i want to i want to put on like your theorist hat with me for a second oh, uh, and i'm gonna t- so i'm gonna no, don't worry uh, i'm gonna tell you first where i'm coming from and i'm just curious to see to see because the thing is, I, like I've, I've even watched you from afar, like on Twitter, uh, etc. You interact with fans constantly, right? That's part of your life. Like it's not just this isn't just like an abstraction where you're like talking out there to the fans and checking the numbers to see like how many people are clicking on your stories. Like you, have, you came of age as a writer of fandom at a time when fans interacted with the writers of fandom. <laughs> so 100%, it's not like yeah. yeah. So I, I actually do feel like you're actually really interestingly positioned as a kind of even though i'm sure you wouldn't call yourself this but like you have a, a unusual type of expertise in fandom through the lived experience of just like being in that environment all the time um so what i'm going to do is i'm going to pitch to you like kind of how i see it and then i'm curious to hear back from you kind of what you take away from that these dynamics that you experience okay okay, um, okay. all right so here's my thing <laughs> i call so I typically call fandom a kind of imagined community, which, and what I mean by that is that I think a big part of what is going on, uh, and this is like where it kind of connects with capitalism and the broader kind of political questions of people's conditions, you know, people are living in a society, a capitalist society that is, as you described in the other forms of work you have had, right? It's so alienating. We live in a deeply alienating culture that makes like work exceptionally painful for the vast majority of people, right? Like people are scraping by and it's diff- it's, it's just hard. Um, and so like sport offers meaning, right? Like it gives you something to care about, to go to sleep thinking about. Like I, I know because that's me, right? Like I like to be able to think about who might like what I read your stuff because I want to know what prospects the Jays are like having the system and this sort of thing. And like that gives me some comfort. Um, but I think a part of it is that through the bodies of these athletes and like what they do in the sport, there's also a way which we build connection to each other, right? So like those experiences in like the 500 level, for instance, at the, uh, on the Toronto Star Pass days, that's also like having all these other people in Blue Jay uniforms who are like high-fiving you and this like feeling, this intense feeling of like passion, energy, and the like connection that again is denied to us in a kind of capitalist world where we're always being isolated and individualized and forced to kind of go it on our, go it on our own. Um, 
So that to me, and, and the problem that that's not the fans' fault, to be clear. That's not the fans' fault. That's like that's we're talking about capitalism. This is a system way beyond any fan. But I, I worry about what that does to the athlete sometimes because it makes like we then have these demands on the athlete. And you talked about the Raptors. Like people were happy in Toronto when Kevin Durant got hurt, for instance, right? And I think that like, part of that is what can happen is that people start to not see athletes as actual people. They see them as these sort of avatars for their hopes and dreams, and they're willing to sacrifice those bodies if they can extract what they want to from the game. And that's the sort of stuff about fandom that I worry about, because I think that it, like, it, it's, then it starts harming athletes. It starts kind of harming fans, too, because it's not really a super healthy form of community that ends up getting formed. It's like a kind of alienated one, nonetheless. Um, and so, you know, later we'll want to talk about politics more a little bit, too. But that's what and I think that connects here, because I think that, that does something to politics to a certain extent. But anyway, I'm, I'm curious if like if what if what I'm saying um, matches up at all with your experience of fandom or, frankly, just what the hell you make of fans after all these years. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, it, it absolutely matches up with fandom. Um, the Durant thing, the Durant thing was weird, but I also sort of, and maybe this is part of like how I've come to interact because I'm not a, you, it's weird. It's like I, I'm you're talking about me as though I have a, like, I do have a different relationship with fandom because I write about it, but that means I'm not a typical fan, right? Like that, like it kind yeah, of, absolutely. It, it kind of cancels yeah. it, it out. And, and uh, I, I just, I kind of think about it sometimes in a, in, in a rude way, in a way that I, I don't want to, I don't want to admit, well, I, oh, I'm about to admit to, but like I, that I don't, <laughs> that I, I worry is wrong or is, is like, well, I'll just say it. it. It reminds me of like kids playing soccer. Well, like when they're like six, when they're just, they're following the ball, you know, like, you know, yeah. it's like, it, it's like, oh, the ball, like, oh, that, that kid got pushed in the dirt face first. Oh, the ball's over there. We're going to go for, you know, that, like, it's just that sort of instinctual, like the, the Durant thing makes me think of that. And I think there's a lot of like weird mob mentalities, psychologies that go on in the, like in the toilet bowl of fandom. That's going you, you know, like you know what I think actually might even be even more telling of what you're talking about is what we did to Kawhi Leonard um, after the season ended and like basically tracking this guy's every movement mm -hmm. on like w there were people tracking like planes and seeing where like w if there was like the MLSE plane the the Maple Leaf and Sports Entertainment plane was like coming from back from LA and people were like tracking that and then there was like this weird like CP24 chase of like this very like OJ-esque Ford Bronco-esque um tracking this this black suv going from pearson um to a hotel in, in toronto and i think that like those moments really highlight what you're talking about here with this it's basically like just people going gung-ho and like um watching the ball and like they they become fans and then they get so invested that they have this emotional connection um so like just thinking about what you're saying i think it was like that Kawhi stuff was even more telling than the, the kevin durant injury for me yeah i i think that i mean that makes perfect sense but i think that's also sort of like the same like the other side of the same coin where it's like i've written about this and i you know i think everybody felt like when the blue jays were in the playoffs in 2015 it's like 
I'd get into a, an Uber or a cab and the Blue Jays game's on and you'd stand in a, a lineup at Starbucks and people were like, did you see what happened last? You know, there, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of like coming together and, you know, that, that, yeah. you know, connecting with people in a, in a meaningful way, I think just feeling your place in the city. And I'm, you know, I'm saying this as a dude from Peterborough or whatever, but, and I know that, you know, I, I thought it was a wonderful thing. Like also like, you know, the new Canadians who would, who or whatever the term supposed to use for, but people who, you know, got a, are, are very on board with the Raptors and uh, you know, it's the, the demographics are slightly different, I think, than say the Maple Leafs. And that was awesome yeah. to watch like so many people just be, you know, young people, people who are more representative of Toronto really not to, not just have a thing like a common thing to believe in, but also to like, funnel down downtown down to to like yeah. jurassic park or maple leaf square and like i i was i was at uh like i drove up from peterborough and went to the the game six against the uh bucks uh oh wow when they won the, when they yeah. won the eastern conference championship and like yeah, yeah. it was like it was just like that's i i i've been i've been in peterborough for i grew up here i've been in, here a couple years but I've lived half my life in Toronto as well. And it was just like, this is my city. Like, this is incredible. Like it was, it was such, uh, just such a high completely naturally to be walking around in that crowd after that game, just hanging around on front street, just even why mm-hmm. I, I, my buddy, for some reason has more money than he should and got a room at the Royal York. And we were up there and we come back down after the game and, we walked to Kensington Market because that's where I know. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> uh, and like the whole city was just electric. And yeah, there's negative sides to fandom, absolutely. Um, and I don't, I don't know how to like synthesize my place within fandom or what I think about it. You know, that's that's that, that that's not really my wheelhouse is to try to like. Mm-hmm. Is to try to to think too much about things. Just I, I just like to, you know. Uh, my brain's working faster than than my mouth sometimes, <laughs> but uh, but but no. I mean, it's, I I think it, it's as much as there is that that can go wrong, and that is you know that should be thought about about all that stuff. I think there's a lot of like really positive things, and it's kind of what I was talking about before. Is like, you know, when you're in the job that I do, I, not, not that I can ever complain about anything, but it, it's like, what, do, like, is that, what is the meaning in this? And not a lot of people are fortunate enough to have a job where you can kind of be like, Oh, maybe it's the fact that it can really be a touchstone for so many people. And I think, and, and we see it even like as when the, when the, the, the lockdowns and whatever happened, like Sportsnet's first instinct is, play the world series games. Cause that's just yeah. something that everybody remembers and loves play the 2015 games. And it's, uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I've always, uh, I've always thought I should think a little bit more about that, but yeah, no, 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 that's, that's, <laughs> but, that might, but that might ruin it. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the problem is yeah, Derek, Derek and I have both talked about that before, right? Because like we have a, a different profession that has a similar kind of tension uh than yours you know it's not exactly the same but um you know we're talking about sports we're talking about sports with people who are interested in sports like our students for instance if we're teaching a class on the sociology of sport 
Um, and so we have to reconcile what's sort of appropriate for us to think and feel and say when it comes to, you know, our own investments, but then also how we understand the role of sport in society or however you want to put it. Um, so, okay, I, I do want us to get, we're going to get to uh, A, sabermetrics, which I really want to talk about, and B, what the hell is happening right now with Major League Baseball, which I think is worth um, <laughs> touching on. Uh, okay. But just the last thing before we do that stuff is, I've noticed on Twitter, you do something um, subtly compared to some, but but still clearly from someone like me, for someone like me, um, you're not afraid to have a political presence on Twitter, I would say, compared to like your average sports journalist. Um, so I just wanted to kind of touch on how you see that. Because for instance, like I'll, I'll be candid and say that in the current US election cycle, uh, I was pretty clear online about my support for Bernie in that cycle. Um, and I'm, I'm, by the way, certain that has rubbed some folks the wrong way um, that I cross paths with. Uh, I've also called myself a Marxist repeatedly on this show uh, in its brief life, so to be, to be candid there. Um, but I have some strong suspicions about your politics as well, having followed you on Twitter and having followed you during this election cycle, right? Because things pop up like retweets from you and so forth pop up on my feed. And I, I have a sense of your own dispositions that they may not be so different than mine in that sense. Um, I feel, though, like that's actually... Like if, if I feel some tension there in terms of like other academics, whoever's following me, I feel like that's harder for you because like you're, you know, Michael Jordan, I've been watching The Last Dance. I'm like Michael Jordan, obviously, right? The Republicans buy sneakers too. Um, now, you're, obviously, none of us are Michael Jordan here, but like you have a brand in the sense like you're working for a, a media company. You have, you're speaking to fans who clearly like lots of those fans voted for Doug Ford, right? And it's like, and many of them would have voted for Donald Trump too, if they could. Um do you think about that stuff when you're online? Oh, constantly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause it, which, which sucks because, but that's the environment you're sort of in. You know, I, I don't, I don't want to anger anybody, but I, I certainly don't want to get a, uh, get a message. that's like, Oh, someone higher up in your company wants to talk to you. Uh, but also, things make me mad about how the world is and the you know exactly as you're saying like the it, it i mean jesus don't don't look at my likes <laughs> Employ me. uh but no like it, like yeah absolutely it, it's it it it, it, it is i'm not, I, i'm gonna say i was gonna say it is difficult but it's like i don't know it's difficult relative to like my cushy life but like yeah i do sometimes <laughs> wonder like Oh, is this too far? Am I am I pushing something? You know, I because I don't I don't I don't want to alienate people. I just you know am mad about certain things, and also if something makes complete sense as and and the opposite is is like a thing people believe. I believe that the thing that makes sense probably needs to be amplified a little bit. Have you ever had any like serious pushback, either like someone sliding into your DMS or like trying to put you on blast? Like, I don't know, in, in like on Twitter or anything. No, I mean, not, not, not work-wise. Like, no, I haven't mm. heard of, like that's no, that's, that's not a thing. And, uh, uh, and, and I don't, I don't think I'm out, out, out there on, on an Island. I'm, I watch what Bruce Arthur mm -hmm. does and then I'll just. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> if Bruce could do it, I feel I could get away with yeah. it. And until I'm told otherwise, I'll keep doing it. And then when I'm told otherwise, I'll stop doing it. Yeah. Uh, but no, I, it, no, that stuff doesn't, 
uh, I mean, I like the I like the block button quite a lot, so mm-hmm. that, really, okay. that really helps me. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't I don't know I don't. Also, we're here in Canada. You guys you guys yeah. know. I mean, it's uh, it's a different dynamic here, but also we watch what's going on in uh, you know the enormous influential place to ourselves, and we yeah we sometimes have thoughts. I I, I try to I I do sometimes wake up in the morning and be like, wait, what were you tweeting about there last night? (laughs) 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 But. Well, I appreciate those. Don't don't come back on those. Those are, those are good ones. Listen, you got a lot of followers on Twitter. These us academics, we don't quite have those many. So uh, it's nice when you're amplifying the good stuff. That, but, that no, but, you, but you're but you're absolutely right that it is. It's weird that I should even have to think about, it, mm-hmm. especially because of how. It well, I'm even like dancing around saying, "quote unquote" <laughs> it right, like. But no, I mean, uh, it's just, it's. There, there's there, you're just being it's just common sense you're being a good person you're like everybody should have health care everybody should you know have a, a way to to live their lives in, not in misery in like the wealthiest time and place in the world yeah yep yep it's amazing how radical a it, notion that is down here right? it's crazy <laughs> and, it, and it is here too we get we get i get pushback uh, sometimes on it, but like I say, I like the I like the block button. It's fine. They don't need to. If they don't like what I'm saying, they don't have to hear it. I'm happy to help <laughs> them out on that journey. <laughs> That's yeah. good. Yeah. No, I got I got a Medicare for all sign on my lawn, and I feel like that like <laughs> might as well be a Marxist sign or whatever because yeah, in uh, in, in North Carolina, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, okay, okay. Let's talk. Let's talk. Uh, let's talk saber metrics right now. Um, and for those who are unfamiliar, I think most of our listeners are going to have some idea what I mean there, but we're talking about advanced analytics, right? Something that you have, and I think this is important to keep in mind, like we, I was touching a lot on the fandom angle of your work, but you've always engaged the analytics piece. I think that's important to say. Um, and baseball, as I think most of us know, has led the way on that front across major sports as detailed, as you mentioned earlier, long ago in Moneyball, right? So it's like part of popular culture that like analytics, part of baseball, long part of baseball. Um, now, statistics are part of the fabric of how we understand and evaluate sport generally, right? And that was true, of course, long before sabermetrics or advanced analytics. Like we think through RBI, right? And home runs, and as you put it, wins and losses, like those are statistics. And we've always thought in those terms. So it'd be silly to say that this is like the advent of statistical thinking in sports. But there is something about the language, I think, of advanced analytics that, and by the way, this might be something we want to talk about too, like fantasy sport, I think in a similar way, seems to affect the very way we understand the game itself. And what I mean is like, after all, baseball's most prized advanced stat, uh, and by the way, you know, I haven't been quite as up to date on advanced analytics in baseball as I was even five years ago. So correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm still imagining that the gold standard is war which is to say, wins above replacement. Um, And and what that suggests to me is that the very notion of disposability then is built into the terminology of the statistic, right? Because we're talking about replacing people. Um, So players become reduced to a number which represents their value. And if that number isn't deemed high enough, they're conceived as expendable. So in that sense, advanced analytics frame labor in a perfectly capitalistic and thus dehumanizing way. Would you agree with that appraisal? Um, is there perhaps a way in which these statistics will making the game more legible in a certain sense? Like, I think it does help us understand how a player is contributing 
to a team. I, I'm not saying that's not true. I found war like useful in thinking about baseball. But does it also at the same time debase the people who are participating in baseball, i.e. the players? I think it does. And I think a really interesting aspect of that whole conversation is the fact that like what like we were talking about in my earlier days uh there were gatekeepers of of what the conversation was about the sport and not their fault some of them are some of them are lovely some of them richard griffin who was a toronto star columnist who i just shit on forever <laughs> yep, <lovely>. yep. <laughs> yeah and uh, and but he's now like the the uh pr guy for the blue jays like they <laughs> they're like they hired him to coordinate all that stuff uh you know the like like literally their access and uh it, in those days it was like the group of people who were pushing back against the gatekeepers uh were people like me who did, i you know i went to i went to york i didn't do what you know we talked about that but like uh were not um What's the right way to put this? Where I don't like to use the like the term like elites or whatever, but like the people who have the have media jobs in particular. I mean, this is still a problem, but in particular, at that time, had come through a certain path, and uh, and I think that there it was sort of I don't want to say populist, but there were like the 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 uprising against the traditional narrative and like the people who have just sort of been deemed. <laughs> by way of their journalism degree or whatever to be the people who get to speak about sports in the newspaper was, I think a, a democratic kind of thing, but it was sort of, but, but a lot, a lot of the way that that happened rode along the rails of sabermetrics and these advanced stats, which yes, obviously you want to, have as much information as possible, but sort of as you're hinting at, like those are ways to dehumanize players and to, and to like quantify everything to the point where it like, where a, a person's humanity doesn't matter. And we're sort of in that space now, or in the last few years, at least it's, I think it's been going on for a bit, but there's definitely, uh, there's definitely a strain of people who came from the like, Hey, stop talking about baseball, learn about stats vein of 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 approaching the game to uh to to recognize that there was a lot that there's a lot wrong with just sort of swallowing that and you kind of see a lot of people uh who get dogmatic about about the statistical stuff and and that's and and believing i guess that it's that that that's there's a path there's a way to jesus through some sort of statistical formula, which is missing the broader concept, which is that, you know, you want to learn as much as you can and you want to be as good as you can. And there's, I think that there's a better uh, understanding now of what, uh, I don't know, of how to treat people and how to, and, and, and how to not exploit uh, what you learn from the stats. I don't know if that's, I don't know if I really mean, I don't know if that means <laughs> Uh, but but I think in a for a long time I'll say this I think for a long time it would like the point was to be exploitative the point was to exploit your opponent and mm -hmm. do and do better and find better solutions than your your opponent could in whatever way possible whether that was 
dehumanizing to people or not. And I think a lot of people who were like, yeah, these guys who do the stats are way smarter than you old school newspaper people kind of got on that train for a bit and have now kind of reached the point where they're like, oh, wait, no, no. You don't want to be the Houston Astros either, though. Oh, yeah. Amen to that. You don't want to be like McKinsey fucking ghouls, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Well said. Everything you're saying there makes sense. Um, And yet, like, yeah, the McKinsey ghoul piece above all for me. (laughs) I'm right there with you. What about the fantasy sport thing? Because, I mean, like with the McKinsey ghoul thing, we're talking about a kind of complicity, right? Like certain, let's say, media members are like they've made... Um, they're making a living off of like being McKinsey ghouls and certainly the front office types are right. I mean, obviously that's where their living is directly coming from, but like fantasy sport is sort of doing similar work on some level too. Um, but like, that's, that's not a situation where the people are profiting from it. Um, uh, at least not in like our typical sense of value. What do you think about fantasy sports? Uh, I love, I have a, I have a fantasy hockey pool that I've been playing for like literally 20 years. Like I had yeah. Patrick Waugh in my first, uh, oh my, goodness. my first year of this pool. <laughs> like it's ridiculous how long it's been, but also I, I mean, is how relevant is fantasy sports conversation to anything that's going on? No offense to the fantasy sports people, but, uh, I, I, I don't know. I remember, I remember that conversation, you know, it's, and it was a it, it was a convenient sort of like pathway to be like oh people don't care about the baseball card stats they just care about the fantasy things but I, I don't know I I don't I don't think about fantasy sports I guess that often unless it's about the Minnesota Wild's fourth line uh, because I want to make sure I get enough shorthanded points to beat my opponent every week in the insane <laughs> the fantasy pool I've been playing in for twenty years. Yeah, no, uh, but, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. Is is fantasy? And this is this is a, this goes back to another thing. Not to take over. No, but, please. You know, but to make me the 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 like the point man for the fans. I don't know. I'm sure there's a ton of people that like fantasy sports. I know there is. They monetize it. There's a lot of people that listen to, and read a lot of fantasy sports stuff. But uh, I don't know. I'm I'm on my way out. I'm like the I'm like I'm like Richard Griffin was 20 years ago. <laughs> Somebody needs to come and just tell me I'm an asshole. Uh, the, so, the, yeah, that was me. I, I played fantasy sports for years, so I, I'm not trying to like look down on fantasy <laughs> sports fans. Like, I, and I, I know that like the, the conversation about fandom, especially like an academic talk about fandom, like, it comes across that way. So that's why I like to try to foreground as much as possible the fact that like I, I feel my that is part of my own identity and experience. Um, I come to it from that. And, and like I play every fantasy sport too. I play fantasy football, basketball, not hockey. I'm just not a hockey guy. Like I, I talk a lot about hockey. Uh, I'm interested in hockey. I write about hockey, but like my own personal investments are not in hockey. So I didn't actually play hockey, um, fantasy hockey. Oh, but... it's, the, it's the best one. It's the best one. <laughs> really? Come on. I thought base, baseball is supposed to be the best one. Uh, the ones I've been involved in have not been as great. I, I, I love my fantasy hockey pool. And it means I know like, especially living here in Peterborough to know the fourth line of the Ottawa senators is uh, strangely beneficial. That's what, ha- that's what happens with fantasy fandom. You become like the, the intimacy yes. of your knowledge of the sport yeah. 
tr is transformed. That's how I came to know. At the same time, I was becoming a bigger baseball fan. I started playing fantasy baseball, and suddenly I didn't just know the Blue Jays, right? But I was like intimately familiar with the National League and their rosters and everything else. Um, but you know, the, the part of it that makes me queasiest is the injury piece to it, honestly, because like you start to really care about injuries to players, but it's not necessarily in the most humane way, right? It's kind of like, oh, this guy got hurt. Like that's so annoying to my team. I've got to replace him. It's so frustrating. So it's like you become the general manager. You know, that, that's my problem with it. Like you start to embody or the mentality of the very people who are treating athletes as disposable because like it's teaching you to approach it that way. Um, and, and that's the thing like, you know, athletes play it too. But I also you hear stories from athletes who are sort of like these people are like cussing me out uh, online or in public because like I'm not producing for their fantasy team. What is that? Right. Um, I, I, I think that's I think that's weird, but also I, you know I don't know I think I don't think it's a bad thing that ever, if you feel like a general manager who's like oh it, I feel bad that this player got hurt as opposed to like fuck him for getting hurt he's ruining my week against my like I, I think that I think that's maybe okay like I I think right. that the you know the and the the general managers as much as they are obviously looking at them in sort of you know players in just like pure asset management sort of terms. I don't know that they necessarily always are. This, the, the guys who are here in Toronto now certainly talk a good game about player development and develop, you know, making them, you know, make, making it, but like, but like treating the guys as people and using, having, bringing in nutritionists and not having a one size fits all thing, uh, like a formula that everybody has to <laughs> adhere to. I don't want to defend Mark Shapiro, good Lord. Uh, yeah, uh, but also, but also, no, I, I don't know. I, it, it, it's, it, it's a, it that bot like the way that general managers bother uh, operate bothers me less than when fans hated Brandon Morrow because he couldn't stay healthy. It's like he doesn't want to not be like he wants to be out there. Like you have to, you know. I, I think that that's a weirder disconnect to me uh, when fans just. They're like, why did you swing at that pitch? It was a ball. And it's like, you know how hard it is? <laughs> I know, it's weird. It is really weird. That's what, that's what I knew. See, that's what I was trying to get at earlier with that fandom piece. It's like, this. no one knows better than you. Like, people just pissing on players constantly or the team or whatever else because they're just in your mentions constantly complaining um, about everything going wrong, right? Uh, again, again, my fondness for the block button. I'm gonna yeah, <laughs> gets that work done for you. <laughs> um, okay, listen, let's let's finish this off by talking about uh, baseball now, right? Baseball in the pandemic, and we, we were kind of getting at the health piece a little bit there um, with the you know maybe dehumanization of fantasy sports, but cheering for injuries, you're saying all that sort of stuff. Um, so here's where we're at. Um, most recently in terms of my understanding, and you may, you, you are probably more up to date than I am, but I'm going to go off of Jeff Passan's recent reporting in ESPN that said that the, so, and let me just actually backtrack before I even get to that. So previously there were spitballing this idea of, um, you know, quarantine locations, bubbles, maybe they were just going to play in Arizona. Then it was maybe they're going to play in sort of four sites, right? That sort of stuff was batted around. The most recent reporting that I know of suggested that the league is thinking of playing in all cities. Um, no fans, but then here are some points that really stick out to me. Rosters expanded to 50. Um, and I think that the, like dressing, maybe 30 players. Uh, but again, that roster expansion piece really pops out to me because like what they're basically saying is they're expecting people to be sacrificed to this. 
uh, pandemic, right? Like we have to expand the rosters so that we can account for all the people that drop out like flies. Um, and then in addition to that, we also have players who have already taken a, apparently a, like a prorated pay cut. That's already understood. Like if there are fewer games played, there's gonna be a pay cut for that. But they're also talking about players taking even more of a pay cut um, to compensate for like the losses of revenue of not having fans in the seats, et cetera. Um, so I'm just curious from where you sit, what's your take on the ideas being batted around? What do you think is likely going to happen? What do you make of all this? Oh, I mean, they're, they're not going to play any baseball. <laughs> ah, okay. Okay. Uh, I, well, no, I, I feel it, a lot of them feel like trial balloons. They feel like, let's see what we can do. Let's make sure people are still engaged with the sport. Um, I do completely believe that they're ready to destroy the minor leagues at any moment. So, uh, so any, you know, the fact that they, I think this week were, uh, there's only going to be a five round draft. And then everybody after that is going to be, you know, the most bonus you can get is $20,000. And, uh, there, it does seem like it, the McKinsey ghoul kind of, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, cabal in the in the league. I don't know if that's the right word, but but like the 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 teams that lean that way see, certainly seem to recognize a chance to like go for the jugular and like let's ruin minor league baseball as much as we possibly can and let's uh, uh, you know just get you know re remold the league in the form that they want, which it turns out is just one that saves owner's money which i think is just it's you know it will just be diminishing returns and i think it's it's terrible for the game uh yeah i i i I don't i don't obviously nobody knows what's going to happen or where it's going to go uh but it's it's so complicated i talked about this on my own podcast this week but like uh in 90 early 1995 uh because I've been, I've become a, a historian. It turns out, okay, yeah. Uh, since you know, for the last seven weeks, uh, so I've been reading a lot of newspaper article stuff. But in 1995, uh, Paul Beeson, president of the Blue Jays at the time, very close friends with Cito Gaston, who was the manager, uh, told the rest of the league when they were also the league was kind of gearing up to have replacement players, scabs, scabs, as I might call them. Uh, yep. they're gearing up to have replacement players. Beeson said that the J he would he would not allow the Jays manager coaching staff any uh, contact with the replacement players. Didn't want to didn't want to open that issue. Didn't want to like force Cito and his and his staff to have to choose management or player side, which seems very reasonable. Uh, and then the entire rest of the league hated them for it. Uh, and the piece, the, the piece that I read was, I think Sal Bando was the GM of the Brewers at the time, uh, which the Bud Seeley owned Brewers, as I may say. So mm, a little yes. bit, a little bit, a little bit pro ownership in that battle, uh, but was basically like, well, not every team thinks the way that the Toronto Blue Jays does, but the Jays were, but, the, but to Paul Beeson's eternal credit was like, no, our guys aren't going to, we're not going to work with the scabs you find replacement coaches for us, uh, which I bring up one, because I thought that was awesome. And two, because there's just going to be, what is there? 30 teams. There's 30 teams. There's going to be 30 different responses to how to deal with this properly. And I think it's really easy to, 
to sort of float ideas and see where it might go. But I might be wrong because they certainly seem to destroy the draft real quick, but I'm not sure that that anything is going to be able to work, be worked out. I think it's sort of like a PR exercise. Like let's keep our, let's keep baseball in the consciousness of people as opposed to like having a real serious proposal, because if it was a serious proposal about bringing baseball back in like June, it's insane. And it's like completely unethical. It's like, you, how, you Oh, we're just going to test guys every hour it's like well i feel those tests might be better used literally anywhere else right exactly so, uh so i don't know I, I don't know there's obviously a lot of money at stake and a lot obviously a lot of people who don't want to look like they don't care about the money that's at stake but come on i, I don't i don't know i don't know it's yeah we probably won't we probably won't see it until next spring that's a, that's a bad thing for me to say because it means i'm going to be a historian for another like six I know, it's months. Rough. But you know, that's less rough than a lot of other things. So I can handle that. That's it. Yeah, exactly. No, I and I, I completely agree with you. It, it really we've this has been a kind of a common theme for us on this show that we're we're pretty aghast at the the attitudes yeah. that are generally be taking across sport, right? This idea that we can rush back to sport. Like the, what actually matters, coming back to the fan piece, what actually matters is that the fans like really want sports and are like <laughs> are craving something beyond the history of the game. So like we gotta for the public interest, there's some almost like an ethical imperative here to get it back for the fans. Um, which just to me confirms this like consistently dehumanizing attitude to athletic labor like these aren't actually real people totally totally i mean it's not quite like like saying that, that no i know you're i know you're at duke but i so i don't want to get too close to home but it's not like saying, you, oh, you can get oh close yeah to home. oh yeah a, scho a scholarship oh no it's like they're getting paid in a scholarship so it's fine that the ncaa doesn't pay their athletes it's not quite that bad but yeah no it is uh, there is a weird disconnect between fans that just want their sports and you know the reality of what the bodies of literally the athletes go through yeah exactly and we i mean you mentioned minor league baseball we're gonna have later this week um dirk hayhurst on the show talking about um who i'm sure you're very familiar with as a yes fellow... uh, yes yeah, say hi to dirk for me i love dirk absolutely and like so he really he you know he 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 really paints a quite the picture of what minor league baseball looks like and it's it's ugly and i'm, I'm interested actually in your yeah. comment if you want to just coming back to it you were saying that it's gonna be possibly the death of minor league baseball and like what dirk is sharing with us uh is like how brutal the conditions already are right in minor league baseball how um it's like night and day compared to the major leagues uh so what do you when you say like the death of minor league baseball what are you imagining there that's a, I, I don't i don't know i mean it's just it, well, obviously, it's so absurd that these companies, for example, I'm in Toronto, Peterborough, as we've established, but like, like Rogers Communications is like one of the biggest companies in the country. The idea that they're balking at paying guys down the chain in the Blue Jays system. I mean, obviously, they probably got a lot of people to pay, but they're an enormous company. Uh, the idea that that these guys can't make a living playing this game and that there's like active uh lobbying to change the laws to make sure that the uh what is the, to to make sure that the, that no one will ever like look at the fact that uh 
it's really a full-time job there i think that you know they they, they have uh you're paying for you're you're at the park for two hours the game lasts two three hours oh, exactly. so you know and is, is, what is it the save america's pastime act I exactly think the, exactly it, yeah it's like it's just it's just it's like scandalous and it's just sort of like a footnote in stories that happened you know a few years ago and it's like oh that sounds bad and it's like well that's the law now and so nobody nobody can do anything about it and it's like well they're chasing a dream so they deserve to be paid nothing and go home and like it's just it's it's a, it's a scandal and it's no it's not like more of a scandal than the fact that other leagues like the NFL or the NBA use NCAA as a, yes. as a minor league because yes. that's completely insane also. But uh, but yeah, it just shows, it shows, what it really shows is that wherever the union can't force them to, to you know, behave like human beings, they will not behave like human beings. That's exactly it. Says, and that's the common thread. Once again, NCAA, Indeed. minor league baseball, same thing, right? We got sites of non-unionized labor. And what do we have? Massive exploitation and horrendous working conditions. What a coincidence there. Um, Isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> well, uh, Andrew Stoughton, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. Uh, I just want for listeners to plug again, check out Andrew's work uh, at The Athletic, his columns at The Athletic. Um, Subscribe to The Athletic because that is where you're going to find some of the best sports journalism today. You'll find John Lott there too, as he mentioned. Um, and listen to the Birds All Day podcast because uh, the work that he and Drew Fairsurface do there uh, about as good commentary as you are going to get on the Toronto Blue Jays. So thanks so much, Andrew. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you enjoy the show, please feel to like, share, and leave a review. And as always, you can reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod.